0: Welcome to Winning the Game of Life. Known as Jungle Man at the Poker Table, Dan Cates has gone from being the bag boy at McDonald's with no friends and a dead-end future to winning over $11 million in online poker, over $7 million in live tournaments, and is a World Series of Poker champion. He has found fame, fortune, been to incredible places all over the globe and connected with some amazing people. It looks like Dan has won the Game of Life but that is not the way he sees it. Dan sees winning as doing his part to help everyone in the world win. He knows he can't do it alone, though. He knows it's going to take a collective effort with anyone that wants to see the same thing. Join us each week as Dan starts the conversation to do just that. On the show, Dan will interview incredible individuals that have made the impossible possible. Those that have won the game of life. And those that want to help others win as well. Hit subscribe and follow Dan's journey on Instagram at the Dan TheDanCates. Let's explore anyone and anything that can help make this world a better place. Increasing the odds of us all winning the game of life. And now, here's your host, Dan Cates.
1: What's up, everyone? This is Dan Cates, and I'm lucky enough to have the great Phil Hummuth on my podcast. For those of you who don't know, Phil is uh, hes one of the biggest winners ever in poker. He's got 16 World uh, World Series of Poker bracelets. His winnings exceed 29 million, his recorded winnings. He's undoubtedly won many more. Uh, and he's 19th on the all-time money list. Thank you, Phil, for being on the show.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the all-time money list is a bit of a crock, actually, between you and I. I mean, you have these guys traveling all over the world, 20 or 30 of them playing 100K, 200K, 500K, million-dollar buy-ins, you know. And how many of those guys are way, way ahead? You know, if you take the 20 or 30 and you average them over the last five years, no one's way ahead, but their numbers have all jacked way up. You know, I I was leading the all-time money list for a while, and I thought I deserved to be there. But mm-hmm. I mean, like, the, the, I don't think it means what it used to mean.
1: I think you're, I think you're right, especially with, yeah, especially with uh, these big buy buying tournaments and everyone's obsession with bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, the, the for sure, doesn't represent what who's actually made the most money by any stretch anymore. It's not really feasible for only. Any, for yeah, people. you
2: know, USA Today did this article on ROI, like in 2012, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And you know they had this chart, right? And I was a little speck at the top. You talk about an outlier. I was so far up there that it was just one little speck, and that you know return on investment because you know I made whatever twelve million dollars or whatever it was my first twelve million playing in like ten k max buy-ins, but mostly five ks and one k. So, so the ROI, you know, which I think is more important, but whatever. You know uh let's let's move on that's just my own ego talking you know i had an amazing world series and so it was pretty cool seven final tables no one had ever done that before uh a bracelet and then you know and then two seconds now the seconds i still think about every day one time i got a little tired and then the other the other was after daniel and i and jeremy osmus played for three hours of heads of a three-handed The heads-up match lasted one hand. (laughs) So, you know, so I keep thinking back, could I have done something different? You know, I had chip leads in both of those. And you think, wow, I could easily have had three bracelets. Or with seven final tables, I could have had seven bracelets. It's kind of unheard of. So for me, it was kind of, you know, there's too many people out there in poker you know, too many of the, like the world knows the world thinks I'm the greatest poker player in the world. And even all the young guys will say I'm the greatest of all time. Fine. Greatest of all time, whatever. But what I really wanted to be was the greatest today. And then, you know, to show up with seven final tables, you know, at least I'm in that conversation. People are saying, wow, that was pretty, you know, and if you look at, you know, you look at all the measures, you know, Daniel Legrand used 25K buy-in where they started like 10 years ago. I'm um, I'm leading that and uh, so but anyway all right this is all bragging and
1: ego um well you get a, you know this is a good spot for it's a good spot for the bragging ego a little bit you know you get your get to uh, say your, your spiel and all that feel like what's this platform for well for a bunch of things but bragging ego it's got a spot too
2: yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right, but it's it's also you know I think Jungle Man for someone like me who's battled ego their whole life the cycles get less and less, less and less. So you know, one weekend where uh, one weekend where I host an event for Tiger Woods and then Michael Jordan ran fifty yards to catch up with me, and then the next day uh, someone emailed me when Obama was president and said, "Hey, Obama was asking how you're doing at the World Series," and I'm like, "Woohoo!" And I walked around <laughs> with my head up my ass for three weeks. I think I was on 99 World Series of <laughs> And all I could think of, all I wanted to do was tell everybody this, Michael Jordan and Tiger and Obama. All I wanted to do was tell everybody these stories. And, and, you know, so ego was very destructive in that moment for me. And then the cycle gets less and less, right? Maybe that was 2000. I don't know when, but, you know, the cycle gets less and less. You get kind of high. So I'm coming off the seven final tables. I'm coming off a weekend in Miami where I'm staying in this 110 million dollar house, you know. I'm on the yacht with Eric Schmidt, who started Google, and you know, having drinks and just like all of these crazy billionaires, you know. And all of these, we're hosting our own events down there, and so yeah, the ego's a little bit big, and so now I'm really. So then it's a matter of, all right, you work on it. Results you know, are big days. too. The results
1: are big too. In in my Saturday.
2: Saturday, I'm on the. I'm at the Warriors game with the owners. You know, sitting courtside, we're in the back eating sushi, and you know, then we're going to dinner with the coach. And so it's kind of it's kind of this crazy life, and you just you just try to you just try to make sure that you don't talk about yourself too much. Which I'm going to do on a podcast, fine.
1: Well, you shouldn't do on a podcast. Podcast is about you so there you go perfect
2: that's fine but it, but in society then you want to be able to ask people how they're doing and pay attention and actually it, it sounds like my ego's out of control but it's somehow it, it's not too bad but uh anyway
1: i think anytime a young up-and-coming player with their sims and their math and whatever talks some kind of crap about you you should say Obama asked me how my tournament was doing. That, that's <laughs> just your response. There's just not much to come back to after that. I had no idea this was the case. Um, that's pretty incredible. Obama, Obama, excuse me. Obama texted you that. I'm really surprised by that. Um, so I want to ask you: with all these young kids and their software and their math and simulations, all that crap and talking shits and uh, whatever else they're doing, how are you managing to be so competitive these days? Um, seven final, seven final tables. Was that this World Series or? Yeah. Or, oh, that is a pretty impressive track. How are you managing to be so successful in spite of uh, all these kids working hard and coming up with all these these softwares and all that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I never, I thought GTO was flawed from the start and i looked at i mean i didn't spend any time looking at it i waited a couple years then i finally spent an hour or two looking at it and i'm like oh that's what they're doing these fucking people are floating me it's kind of unbelievable but the very next day i won a bracelet the very next day i entered the no limit tournament and uh a day and a half later because it was the uh, turbo or maybe it was that day i think it was a day and a half later yeah even the turbos are two days I had a bracelet and it's just because I thought, wow, they're going to float me on the flop. Fine. I'm going to bet every flop and then I'm going to smash every turn. And so, you know, so I'm just actually picking up free money if they're going to float me because they think they're going to outplay me. It was just a weird thing that I happened to study it. So anyway, I thought there were a lot of flaws in GTO. I don't want to go into what they are because for some reason, people still misunderstand No Limit Hold'em. And then, you know, solvers, sure, I've never used a solver. I studied GTO one hour of my life and didn't like it, but I saw, when I watched some of the high limit stuff, I think they're making a lot of mistakes, a lot of fundamental mistakes. Uh, And so, you know, the solver stuff actually creates, I believe, more action for you and I, because I believe, I could be wrong, that when I see these guys that are doing solvers, they're putting a lot of chips in all the time. And that's the style I wanna play against because I'm super tight. And so, you know, and so I, you know, and, and the other thing is just at the top of everything I just said, at the very top, jungle men they have to look at me. They have to look at me. They yeah. have to give off. It's not like they've learned to be perfect robots. If they could somehow disguise themselves, if they could hide behind a brick wall and make the plays they make, I'd still be able to figure some stuff out just based on pattern recognition. But pattern recognition along with, okay, they don't have it or they're super strong. That's that's what the gifted, the gifted no limit holding players have the ability to know whether people are weak, super weak or super strong, and then you can use that to your advantage. Yeah. So to me, the, no matter what strategies they come up with, they have to use it, and I and I'm going to have a chance to read them. Mm-hmm.
1: I can see I can see also uh, I can see, yeah, about the reading and thing in particular. I definitely think that's a very important skill in deep live tournaments, uh, more so deep because that's when really the, all the pressures on. I personally, right. as someone who I find I, like I, I imagine people don't exactly do my bluffing reputation to be pretty clean. I've ran some pretty animal bluffs or whatever, but I will say that even during like deep in a final table. As little that I care, I find the pressure to be immense during uh, a final table deep, and I—I'm not so sure that I hide it perfectly. So I can only imagine that if you have the ability to read people very well, uh, especially when it really matters, well, that's when it—I mean, that's when it's hardest to hide. Um, that would come really in handy, and that is a skill that I think that is very hard to teach and also that a lot of these online guys will lack, uh, especially if they're new to live poker, because I, per- I personally found a lot of, uh, I found it easy to make a number of mistakes while adjusting from live poker to online. Uh, yeah, and- there's
2: this, there's this book called EQ, right? It came out maybe 20 years ago. Right. And reading hmm. people is not a learnable star quality, right? So, I mean, I started experimenting with this in the eighties because I started making so much money in poker when I first came in, in the eighties and nineties, I thought this is just easy. Right. And so then I trained all my friends, but they didn't have that, that reading ability. And so no matter how much I tried to teach them what the reading ability was, they couldn't ever get it. So I think maybe in life we're capped and we can probably take it up 20% from our cap on reading ability. I mean, that's the one thing I have going, what's the difference between me and everybody else. And maybe Negranu has this and a few others have this great reading ability. And that's why we continue to stay relevant. But by the way, to come back to what you said, it also comes up in limit games, you know, having just made, and I made seven final tables. Sure. That's a, no, one's ever done that before, but I didn't even do one in Hold'em. And everybody's like, oh, Phil's only a Hold'em player. I did it in seven different games. And Hmm. so, you know, but I found myself when someone raised say an Omaha eight or better. I remember folding ace, three, five, eight. I hated to fold it. And the ace three was suited out of the small blind. And I'm just like, God, he has it this time. He has like the ace, deuce, king. And I'm just going to fold. And, you know, you could argue that mathematically I can play that hand or not. But the blinds were very big at that point. And if I, you know, and if I get involved, I could have lost almost all of my stack in one hand. So I think that reading ability also comes in in the limit games.
1: I could see where it comes in. Certainly, again, deep in tournaments, it, it seems really, really relevant more deep in tournaments than the cash games I could see just because
2: Jungle man, I was playing, I was playing a RAS tournament. Okay. And this kind of, we're talking 2019, excuse me. I'm playing the, the eight game mix or whatever it was, eight game mix in Raspidov and we've got about, I don't know, 20 players left. I don't even think we're in the money and someone raised and I had a deuce up, but I had a king queen in the hole. And I had like literally two big bets left. So when I re-raise him, I've just put half my stack at risk.
1: And they he for a minute queen in the hole and ras. Correct. No way. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, I was gonna. I thought I was gonna ante off otherwise. And he said, "Well, Phil always has it," and he folded. Kind of a name player, right? And I just, I just sensed he was weak. Well. I mean, I think I'm probably going to be eliminated shortly thereafter, but I won that hand, which gave me, a, you know, another big blind and a half. Now I'm up to a little more breathing room. And then what happened was I ended up making that final table and ended up finishing third. And then <clears throat> and then about, you know, four days later, we had the 25K eight-game mix. And in that one, I got to a massive chip lead. And that was one of those times where I got tired. I think I'm supposed to win that bracelet. Um the other guy didn't even play half the games, you know, and we're playing an eight-game mix. And I think so, I mean, I end up with a third and a second over in Raspadov. And then the very first tournament out of the box in 2021. So, I mean, the last real-world tournaments, you know, I had a third and a second. First tournament out of the box, I make the final table in horse. And then over that 17 days, five more final tables. So it's kind of incredible to have that one that I had in the mixed games. But, yeah, sometimes you have to use your reading abilities in very weird ways. And, you know, I mean, I just laid it all down the line in that hand. And like I said, I was getting short, and I just sensed weakness and said, fuck it. I hope showed.
1: That's the king, queen, and raz. Hell no,
2: I didn't show. I, it. Haven't I folded it face down. And the guy, the guy asked me, did you have it? And I pretended my music was on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't – I i'm not even crazy enough for that one man that one's really intense um how did you get started with in uh poker
2: yeah i was going to university of wisconsin uh we're talking about you know 1984 jeez yeah 83 84 and then i found poker it was kind of you know there was this game that existed. Maybe it was my third year there. Maybe it was 1985 or 86, and I found this small stakes game at the Memorial Union. And that was famous because that's where they used to smoke pot in the open. In fact, jungle—you could smoke pot in the open in 1985 at this Memorial Union, right? Oh, and You couldn't play poker, so they stopped <laughs> so us from. Like <laughs> it was fucking un- outrageous. I'm like, wow, this is discrimination against poker. And it was, it was aggravating a little bit that, but anyway, found the game there. And then, you know, once you find a small stakes games, so there's always bigger ones. And so then I, next thing I knew I was playing with, you know, I was 20 and I was playing with doctors, professors, lawyers, the youngest guy in the game was like 44 and I was 20 and I kept smashing those guys. You know, I had something early. That's Next, where the you know, I had $20,000 in the bank. You know? <laughs> yeah. I had twenty k in the bank. I paid off my student loans. You know?
1: 1985, 20000 k. Yeah, it was a lot of
2: money for me. I mean, I never had any money in my life. You know, must
1: you know, have been a lot of that in 1985. 1985. Yeah. 86,
2: 87. And then I started going to Vegas right when I turned 21. And I just lost 10 trips in a row. But I also played other games like Baccarat, Craps. I played those games. And uh, you know, and I kind of probably when I was 21, 22 was a little bit too addicted to those games, not to where I not not to where a lot of people are addicted, but you know, I liked them too much, and pretty soon, by the time I was 23, I'd quit all those games. Now, now that I'm you know older, I'll go play those games for fun or entertainment. I'll play blackjack just I know that I'm even money, or I will play a little baccarat just to hang out with people. But that's just like the money's completely irrelevant to me now when I play those games.
1: I think a lot of people that are listening to the podcast would like to hear about the story of you losing 10 trips in a row to Vegas or having issues with house games, just because I think, you know, no one's really perfect. And certainly with someone as much success as you, uh, to hear that you had something as struggling or excuse me, and struggled as hard as like losing 10 trips in a row, that must've been very frustrating, uh, especially when you're trying to. Yeah. You know, have all You're these- right
2: and people like to hear some of the some of the like to hear that it's not just straight up and it's not just straight up you know mm-hmm. yeah so we're talking about yeah those, so i mean i'd go back to madison i'd win two three four five thousand in my game over a couple of weeks and i'd go back to vegas and for nine trips in a row you know i think maybe on the seventh trip i finally i did it to myself jungle man i really i ran out of money and i'm uh, sitting with uh, you know uh and I even used up like all of my change. And so I'm caught in a Vegas hotel room with zero money, like zero money. Maybe I had like 40 cents. And, uh, and I somehow have to get to the airport. I have to check out of the room. I'm not even sure that I had the money to pay the checkout in the room. Uh, probably did. But, but I think I, maybe I'd prepaid. Or was, but anyway, I don't think I had a credit card. And so I remember that was miserable. And I told the taxi driver, I said, listen, before I got in the cab, I said, "Listen, I have zero money. Can you take me to the airport?" And he said, "Ah, what the hell?" Takes me to the airport. I called my mom. I'll never forget. This is a very, you know, huge moment. You're spotlighting one of the big moments in my life. And uh, my dad picked up the phone, and I'm like, "Fuck!" My dad has a PhD, a JD, and MBA, and he hated that I was playing poker. And he's like, "Well, I think you should, you know, hitchhike home and learn a lesson the hard way." And I'm like. Jesus. I'm like, listen, I have money. I did have money at, at home. I had like $800 you know, in cash. And I said, mom, just pay my plane ticket and I'll give you the money when I arrive back home. It was like $220 or something for my plane ticket. And, uh, and she said, this is the last time I will ever help you because you have four younger brothers and sisters. And to their way of thinking, I was a compulsive gambler, right? I was an addict. And, uh, you know, they were, they were, they they were, I guess they were partially right, uh, but they were mostly wrong. And so she paid for the ticket. I gave her the money immediately when I arrived. And so it's not like they ever helped (laughs) my parents, you know, all right, you floated me money for, you know, seven hours till I can pay you back when I landed. Um, And, uh, but I didn't blame them. You know, they didn't have a lot of money and they had four younger brothers and sisters. They had to pay for their college. Where they want to start giving me a bunch of money because I'm playing poker? No. So, but that was a really tough moment. I remember at Jungle, I was really hungry and I just ate a ton of peanuts on the way home. And I remember hating peanuts for like 10 years. I never, every time they brought me peanuts on the plane, I'm like, no, for like 10 or 15 years, <laughs> you know, because it's such a bad experience just to gorge yourself with peanuts because you had nothing else to eat. And, uh, you know, my story isn't as bad as a lot of people's you know, because I was able to pay my mom back. So there's some responsibility there. And, uh, and then I never made that mistake again. I said, I'll never leave myself in that spot again because I can't depend on my parents. And then I got a credit card after that. And of course I made a bunch of money in Madison again, probably got my bankroll up to four or 5,000, went back to Vegas again. So nine losing trips in a row, a lot, mostly playing casino games. And then by the 10th trip, it was the strangest thing. I started winning all this money playing poker. And I felt sick. I called my mom, I said, why do I feel bad? I've won all this money. She said, you're used to losing. It's a new sensation. I said, well, I hope I get used to this sensation. So I remember I left 10 or 11,000 winner, which was a lot of money. And I kind of developed the habit of winning from then on out, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't straight up. You know, uh, there were times where I busted myself, jungle man, cash wise but never asset wise. So I bought a couple of cars, you know, and so I'd have, you know, $50,000 worth of cars, uh, a watch, a bunch of money in my retirement account. And so I'd, but I'd be low to my last thousand or two on cash. And uh, and I just always seemed to run it up from there. It was kind of crazy what desperation can do. And then, you know, and then I bought a penthouse condominium for 185,000 after I won the main event. And so, so you know, I paid it off though. There was no money borrowed, and I had a car and a penthouse condo. And so, from that sense, my life was amazing. But then I'm fluctuating between a thousand and five thousand dollars in cash, you know. And I refused to borrow money in the house. I refused to borrow money from my friends. And so, I would drive up to Escanaba, Michigan, you know, from Madison, four hours on Wednesday. I was married with a kid, and I would play ten twenty poker for three days and I'd come back with two thousand or three thousand dollars and you know I mean there was there was some work involved back then
1: had sort of a similar problem uh, I've done something similar but not to the, the same extreme I never had the I never had the the pit game problem which this is a good this podcast is also a good lesson in not playing pit games. Uh, if people who do that needed more reminders Uh, i'm tempted to ask you a bit more about that experience and getting over it and i think one of the reasons why your story is inspiring is because it seems that uh like you also you had success and you went to the bottom and then got out which i think is harder than starting at the bottom of just going up if that makes sense it's harder to like kind of swallow your pride and uh and rebuild after after that kind of fall and then oh,
2: let me let me tell you the swallowing pride part if you want to ask about that. Is that what you want to talk about?
1: I do. There's many things I want to talk about. Uh well, let's st- talk about
2: the swallowing pride because this all is right, where sure. it came in. Well
1: all right let's talk about the swallowing pride.
2: So so Ted Forrest started staking me and so it was the weirdest thing. You are not going to believe this. I said so I was worth whatever by 1998 And I said the minute that I had a million dollar net worth I'm gonna get staked. So everybody else would get down to zero before they got staked or they'd borrow. So I had established I'm not gonna borrow money from poker players, I'm not gonna loan money to poker players, okay? Mm. Because eventually I reasoned, I'm gonna have a hundred million dollars and everybody on the planet's gonna own me because I thought I was really good. And so if I start this, it's not going to be, it's not gonna end well for me, number one. And number two, I can't support a bunch of other players. So. So I remember my wife and I were at this, like, we were at the Four Seasons in San Francisco, and I said, honey, I'm a toast to me getting staked. I'm down to my last million dollars. And she got really mad. She said, what are you toasting for? What do you mean you're going to get, you're going to get, why are you toasting? I said, honey, I'm not toasting it. I'm toasting the strength of my money management. Because no one in history, when they got down to a million valuation, maybe I was a 1.4 1.4 at the peak and I came down to a million including my house and all my assets you know and my retirement account and all that no one in history had done that and so I'm sunny I said honey I'm celebrating the fact we're never going to go broke in our lives because if I can get staked you know and so then Ted staked me for about 3 years and I the hole got deeper and deeper jungle it was like I lost 50 first I won 150 and we got 75 each and then I started losing and losing and losing you know tournaments you don't always hit I was yeah, playing sure. cash games. And when you're when you're 150 on uh, makeup, you're playing at two, 400, it's hard to focus, right? Because what are you sure. trying to win? Seven, 8,000 to pay off the... yeah? And so Ted had also agreed to pay all my bills for me and just throw that on the tab. So I had zero pressure on me. So I spent a lot more time at home. And then in 01, I won three bracelets. And I and, and really I bad. remember hand, heading, Ted, handing Ted Forrest 500,000 in cash. <laughs> Here's your makeup here's um, your profit right and i had like 70 myself
1: <laughs> that's
2: another story of ted having it put in a bag at the horseshoe slinging on a shoulder and walking into the dingiest darkest parking lot in fucking america and i'm like dude i'm not going to die for you you know i don't know what you're doing can you just get a security guard to <laughs> ted was pretty goofy we made it we made it to the car and he went over to whatever the mirage at the time and just put the whole 500 and play there or whatever. I mean, just put it in his account. I mean, but anyway, I was kind of goofy to be carrying around 500 in cash, but yeah, the desperation then started for me when I decided that I was going to go to the commerce and play poker in February, like everybody else. But I'm now Phil Helmuth who just won three bracelets. I'm Phil Helmuth who everybody's talking about how great I am. And hey, you can't you know, just, and- that
1: just you gotta like, you gotta step up and, uh, and show people what's up.
2: Right, so instead of playing in the 600-1200 game, I walked by that. I walked by the 400-800 game, and they were both going. I walked by the 200-400 game, and I oh, went to the 100-200 game. And I know everybody in the fucking room staring at me and whispering, Phil's broke, Phil's broke, unbeknownst to them, knowing that I have at least a million, of course, you know. Uh, but, it, but, I, but, you know, I talked to Ted about it, and I said, listen, this is about feeding my family. This is about putting the ego to rest. This is about you start where your bankroll tells you to start. And swallowing the pride, walking in there day after day in the month of February, and knowing everybody's saying shit about me, you know, was, it was very, it was very good for my, it was, it was, it hurt, it was very painful, but that was all ego. Why is there pain? It's all ego. Cause you know, everybody's whispering. There's Philly went to the fucking 153 game, you know? and uh but i did it i did i did things right jungle
1: and uh what matters more you know, than people t- saying something and i in my i think people don't say it that much they don't care after a little bit but definitely doing things right is more valuable than, than.
2: no but jungle man same thing with you when you're you and i are very famous in poker right mm-hmm. everybody knows you everybody knows me and when they see us playing small they can't help but say something. That's just the way it is. You can't be the biggest name in poker, which I am or was, and you can't be that big and, and expect to walk in a room and play in like the fourth smallest game without somebody. So I'm sure they were all talking. I saw them pointing and laughing, but I just I just said, fuck it. This is, this is about feeding my wife and kids. And oh, by the way, I have a house that is now worth $3 million because I got lucky with my house. From yeah. 900 to 3 million in three years because I'm in Palo Alto. So I had a $3 million house paid for, you know? <laughs> and so they don't know this. And I had, I had whatever, another five, 600,000 stock or market or whatever. But I'm choosing a, my poker bankroll was 30,000 or whatever, or 20. Yeah. And, you know, and so, but I, and so everybody's, oh, why don't you borrow money? You could do this, you could do that. No, I'm going to fucking do it the hard way. I'm not. I'm not going into debt.
1: That's the real way to do it: is to do it, do it the hard and the right way. It's just the hard. That's it's the, hard to do, it's, man.
2: I, I know you struggled for a while there, Jungle, when you had money. When you had when you all your money got locked up, you were having tra- you were playing some games, and you weren't. And it was hard for you to play in the big game, and you know. And that's just a little bit of a struggle. That's the way it is
1: yeah i learned different kinds of lessons during that period uh long a bit of a longer story well now that you've had uh you've reached the pinnacle of poker success i mean it seems like it shows in all these extravagant and mm, let's say less obvious ways to a lot of our poker audience Uh, in how should i say um in ways that people in our in our poker audience don't necessarily appreciate i think is a better way to put it i see you've got the bitcoin platinum hat uh you know i I kind of have an idea of like the kinds of things you do in los angeles and i you know even you were mentioning like you're involved with um some businesses and uh this sort of stuff intrigues me personally and i think this is um how should i say Uh, another aspect to success. Um, Well, go ahead. Whatever, however you'd like to take it.
2: Well, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Yeah, we've got the business stuff going on, right? And it's just like the celebrity stuff, who knew this was going to come? But back back when poker started becoming big, all these A-listers wanted to hang out with me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted to meet all the poker players. But for some reason, I formed bonds with a lot of these guys. And so now I find myself connected to tons of a-listers uh you know u.s presidents and like it's just kind of crazy how you know i'm connected to you know uh you know uh, i was in italy with elon musk a couple months ago right for four or five days you know and just kind of the crazy stuff that happens you know uh he challenged me he wanted to play uh, he, he wanted to bet uh you know he wanted to bet some dogecoin i um, one of his guys versus me. It would have been fun. And so it's just, it's just kind of crazy. I find myself in these crazy circles. When I go to Miami, you know, it's just I'm on yachts and I'm in this $110 million. And, and I fit right in with all the people, you know. And they're all my friends, you know, the Chicago Billionaire Group, I like to call them. And, you know, we host our own party with rappers and, <laughs> and fighters and they all want to hang out with me. And so it's just kind of this weird thing where, you know, uh, I'm grateful for it. I wasn't expecting it, but my life's become very aspirational. Even when I flew to Miami, my friend's like, hey, if you want to fly 12 hours later, hop on my jet. You know, and another friend's like, hey, if you want to fly home a day later, hop on my jet. And I just took the commercial flight uh, both ways. I mean, for one reason, I get to to not talk all day, which I kind of like because I'm pretty busy. And then Jungle, all this all this business stuff's been crazy. I'm on 15 advisory boards. I'm helping all these companies. We did these, we did three SPACs. I brought the company in. I brought Rush Street Interactive into my SPAC. So the way it works, I put in 300,000 into my SPAC. So you send in it, you, you wire it, and the next day it's 900,000 on the street. So now you're in a stock, but you can't sell for 18 months or whatever, or two years or whatever. The, but you're tripled up now. If he doesn't find a company, I lose the whole three hundred. So it's a gamble. If he finds a great company and that company doubles, now you're up six x. So I found Rush Street Interactive, uh, you know, as the company. And Rush Street's trading at around eighteen right now. I have to look at you know, uh, it was at twenty. So at twenty, I have one point eight million from my three hundred k that I put in a year and a half ago. But also, since I found the company, they gave me a couple million dollar bonus, right? because I brought the company and I vouched for the CEO of the company. And the company, I also vouched for my SPAC, two very powerful business guys. And so they gave me a couple million dollar bonus, which was stock and cash. And so that was a lot of fun. And then, and then that led to our second company, which was Genius Sports. Now, we're not going to come up with Genius Sports if I'm not involved. I didn't find them. But because we were in the gambling space, Genius Sports availed itself to us, right? And they're a duopoly okay they're they have an exclusive deal with the nfl 95 percent of the people that bet on the nfl they have to come through genius sports for their data rights their data rights and so then genius sports and then the other one then their third spec which I had nothing to do with i can take zero credit is we did uh we did this uh, ionq we did this quantum computing company mm-hmm. and that thing was at seven and then it went all the way to 30 because because it's the number one quantum computing company in the world. I think it's floating at around 20. It was up to today. It, it was down to today. This thing's been going all over the place. And then you find a company to take public. If you don't find if you don't take it public in 18 months, you lose your money. So anyway, that's been fun. I've been doing that and, and you know, quite I've accumulated quite a bit of wealth just from that, um, and so. But I love the business stuff. I mean, for me, the, I will say this, Jungle. I have this thing during the series, I say no business calls from anybody. I don't care how important it is. What does that mean? And all the CEOs agree to that. So the two months I'm just focused on poker, but the minute that's over, my foot's in business. In fact, I have a call with Prize Picks. Uh, I think we're doing 30, 40 million uh, in, in, in revenue and in, in, in bets per month now. Prize Picks is an app. Where you, so I'm meeting with the CEO in a couple of hours, and I'm going to meet with the CEO of Fluid Form a couple hours after that. This one is 3D printing heart valves. We're in the cutting edge science of the world. How am I involved in this jungle? Because when you build companies, you need somebody like me who can raise money, who can put you in front of the smartest people in the world. And so it's just been it's been this crazy run. I mean, that's just what's happening this afternoon. Is I have to meet with these two CEOs one on one. I, I don't like to advise, I don't want to be advising 10 people in the company, I want the relationship with the CEO and, uh, and they, and they keep, and it's been a lot of fun anyway.
1: Yeah. I feel like even I I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty impressive. Uh, I had no idea that you had like this much business stuff going on. I, I feel like we like skipped somewhere at some point because there's there's you winning all these tournaments, and then all of a sudden, boom! A list celebrities, and then uh, and now, now you're like a serious businessman, and you're involved in all these like companies across many different fields. And uh, it sounds like you're providing some strategic value for them too. What happened in between all this? How did you get on board uh, from poker to this like higher sort of platform? In my in my opinion, like the world of business is like I view it to be. Something like a bigger game than poker. This is part of what oh, it's too. a thousand
2: x bigger than poker, right? Yeah. You know this and I know this, and, and and the businessmen know this, right? I mean, you look at the top ten big names in poker right now, you know, and, and you look at the guys that are playing at the Lager every day, half those guys are broke. Three quarters of the guys are broke. You have money, I have money, but we know a lot of these guys don't even have money. So they're working hard, they're playing a thousand, two thousand. They don't have any money, they're getting staked. But to come back to the business thing, I think in 1997, I decided that I love my wife. You know, I've been married 32 years, and I love my kids, and I want to be home for them. So I decided that I was going to become a businessman. And then things slowly progressed. I think I joined this company called Lasso, Lasso Gear. So we do this. We do socks. And so they're the best socks ever made. James Harden wears our socks when he plays. Cam Newton wears our socks 24-7. All these major athletes, Draymond Green works out with our socks. All these major athletes are wearing our socks and they're the tightest. They fit all the way to the knee. I've never had them socks held up before. But Lasso Gear is a company and Partha Unavis, a CEO. Well, I started helping him and I've provided so much value to him, raising money, introductions to people all over the world, introductions to VCs. He started telling other founders about me. These other founders started coming to me, and then other founders told other founders. And all of a sudden, kind of the word of mouth Phil can help your company. How can I help? I'm really, really good at the seed stuff, right? So if you have a company that's worth between two and 10 million, I can help you raise money. I can help you with strategic vision. They love the strategic vision. And my strategic vision is great at the beginning, right? Company building. But then at some point, like let's talk about lasso gear, right? At some point we hired Uli Becker, right? Mm-hmm. Uli Becker was like the C- was like the CEO of Adidas uh, or COO of Adidas. The minute we hired him I'm like, "All right, I'm not as useful." Because here's a guy that knows a lot more than I do that's industry specific, right? Yeah. And I was right. The minute that the minute we got to Uli Becker, Phil started getting called a lot less. But I still helped the guys get from 2 million valuation to 12 million valuation. By raising money, by providing contacts, by, you know, Andrew Bogut invested. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know well, he's great. He's an Australian connection for us, right? He can help us. He owns a team in Australia. Um, I introduced him to, to. I introduced him to uh, Kevin Durant's agent. I introduced him to um, Draymond Green. I introduced him to uh, Steph Curry's agent. I introduced him to all of these. I mean, you're like, oh, just that's just. a a small portion of the athletes I introduced to. And so, and so then what happens is he's like, holy shit, Phil changed the course of my, he helped me a lot. I don't know about change the course of my company. You have to ask Partha. But anyway, he recommended to me all these other founder CEOs, they know each other. And all of a sudden I'm in this company, in this company, in this company, in this company. Mm -hmm. And I even did one, I I joined Genie's. Yeah. You know, and Genie's just raised at 420 million valuation. Um, You know, I came at 140 million. Um, I came to advise them, you know, and, uh, and a lot of times jungle, I'll just make one, I mean, I've pivoted whole companies with one meeting or one phone call. Really? And so that's been fun for me. And I love, I love the strategic vision. They tell me their plan and I'm like, have you thought of this? Have you done this? Have you and like 24 hours later, my mind is chock full of ideas for them. A lot of the ideas they've thought of, but it's been a lot of fun to do business stuff.
1: But I think... That it's important for the audience to recognize, you know, some of these less, I would I would say the are less obvious the sort of skills that go beyond just studying Sims and knowing math in uh, poker games. I think some of the things we're talking about here are much more important than that. And even at some point, well, they are a bigger picture, actually, even if they're a bit understated. What do you think, Phil?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you, what you're talking about is the ability to connect with people. We call that EQ versus IQ, right? Emotional intelligence. And so, yeah. I have some good emotional intelligence, even recognizing in myself that maybe I'm a little cocky at times. With my wife, self, my wife is a genius too, and uh, yeah, I I mean, very, she's great. Yeah, I mean, she's very um, she's very powerful, but she's also she has no ego at all. I mean, I laugh at her. I'm like, "Hun, Europe or Europe." Stanford doctor, for God's sakes. And, you know, and and everybody loves you and you get along well. And, but she doesn't have much confidence. She's beautiful. She's a black belt in karate. You know, she's my age, so uh, older, but I don't know. I'm still crazy about her uh, physically, mentally. Every, I'm all in with Kathy and, and she's amazing. I mean, um, winning a life right there. Uh, I mean, that's really, that a big... helps a lot. Yeah. And she's cooler than I am. And so occasionally, I'm like, hey, how should I answer this text? But I think in, in connecting with people is important, right? And so, I learned that the hard way, right? And so, you know, Jungle, you and I might be hanging out and then some billionaire comes up to us and he's like, oh, that's Jungle Man and Phil Helmuth, right? I want to talk to him, right? I don't care if it's a billionaire or a regular person. um, uh, I'm going to be really nice and I'm going to make maximum effort to connect with that person because that's important in life, you know? Um, And then I think, you know, when it comes to the business stuff, being connected to like I mean I think I have a different perspective than everybody else. So when I started playing with a bunch of billionaires in Palo Alto, I mm-hmm. taught them all how to play better, right? Somebody like Mike the Mouth, you know, and I remember I remember I made a bunch of money, you know, uh, in the pandemic, right? And uh, well, I don't want to t- tell that story. I'll just say this. You know, we're talking about we're talking about um connecting with people. And, uh, and I think that I immediately taught everybody to become. So if you look at Draymond Green, right, who's, who, you know, is an amazing, amazing athlete, but amazing guy. His poker game is way up here as no limit hold him because I've trained him. I've sent him. We played together a lot in the pandemic. You know, we sent each other a, a hundred texts, 500, a thousand texts back and forth. I'm teaching him. Wow. I take pride. So am I going to beat him for much money the rest of our lives? No, because he's a hell of a poker player. And so is Chamath, and so are all of the guys that I'm fortunate enough to hang out with. You know, my group, my billionaire group, as I'd like to call it, if they go and play with the New York guys, the New York billionaires, the Chicago billionaires,
1: they're going to win billionaire because team. they've all
2: been trained by me. <laughs> so I, I, so I mean, some people like Mike the Mouth would be, wow, you trained everybody. And so when we had an online game, I said, I want you to train this guy and train this guy to have Mike call somebody. I'd have you know Ben Yerush Yerush uh, call somebody and train them and help them because you know I mean like it's not just and so I think that's a different perspective I'm going to train all of the but then also you have more of a relationship right but you know I find myself fortunate to, to be involved in the groups I'm in and they know that I'm and I'm not a hustler you know uh, I mean, yeah. I've been hanging out with Mr. Beast and I said Mr. Beast listen he came to my house right now He's the second biggest YouTuber in the world, right? Or number one on YouTube. And, uh, you know, his game of thr- – uh, he did the Squid Games. My wife and I just watched Squid Games because I want to watch his. So Squid Games took 12 years to make and nine months to 100 million views. So Wait. Mr. Beast put his version of Squid Games out and it had 100 million views within five hours. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, but here's a guy, that, <laughs> you know, that has beat me playing heads up. But I said, listen, I'm going to go visit you in North Carolina, see your studio and hang out and have some nice dinners with you. I don't want to overwhelm him, but I'm going to take poker off the table. No poker. And so most most players, most poker players are always trying to hustle. They want to get in the big game. They want to play with this guy. They want to play with that guy. And they disrespect the businessman, too. How many times I heard some poker player in L.A., in 2000 saying oh this guy is a whale he's a fish and i'm like dude he made 200 million in business all right he's just here for entertainment you're the fucking fish you know and so all these guys so i would defend this is just in private conversation so i have a little bit different view of the world and yeah jungle man i I now think as of about nine months ago i thought wow i i can actually become a billionaire in fact i think i'm going to become a billionaire and uh, that's not a goal I'm not trying to become a billionaire, but, and I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next seven, eight years, but it could, you know, and so the business stuff leads to a very, very comfortable financial living for me, right, and then, you know, the poker stuff is great, I I guess, I didn't know how much money I made during the series, I wasn't paying attention, Um, I actually saw the, they actually sent you a sheet, all your buy-ins and how much you made, and. I happen to sell pieces of myself in the in the 100k and the 50k that I didn't get in, and I tried to sell myself in the 50k pot limit Omaha, but the person I asked said I can't legally do it right now, so I had to risk. And so that was the one I hit for 750 or whatever. So, but anyway, yeah, it looked like I made 860,000 just during the series. Oh, no, we sell.
1: Just just 860 or whatever.
2: And then all the heads up matches. <laughs> I mean, those add up. You know, you beat Antonio for 100, 200, 400. That's 700K. Then In the final match where we put up 200 each, I had 185,000 of myself because I just didn't sell anything, you know? And I just didn't bother making a lot of phone calls. And so then I beat Daniel three in a row. And so, you know, and I probably had 190 of myself in that final match. And so, you know, it's so, yeah. And those are the things that make you cocky, though. Win, 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 win. And then it's a matter of, okay, at age 57 how do I make the life cycle of cockiness shorter because I want to stay on the beam. I want to walk on the beam. I want, to I want to play great. I call it keeping your head down. When, when you get all cocky your heads up looking around praise from a president praise from this praise from the billionaire praise from people that you think are amazing are praising you. They're sending you texts, right? And if you mm-hmm. heads up looking at all that, you're screwed. So I try to keep my head down. And then I think this book positivity jungle you know you know tony robbins i think you know who
1: he is but most you, i've actually know. been intrigued about him lately i'm thinking to take his course for multiple reasons Yeah,
2: daniel loved it um i i took it but you look at the back of my book tony robbins gives he wrote this himself this amazing jacket blurb from my book positivity he tells that, people that's i I'm
1: I'm think I'm, I'm gonna get the book too
2: He tells people to buy my book in advanced seminars. That's
1: impressive.
2: I'm I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I mean, when I found that out, I was walking around. My ego was a little big for a week, right? Because Tony Robbins tells people to buy my book. It's just eight life tips. It's what I learned. And so after I wrote this book, it took 20 years to write this book.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I had this book, and I remember, you know, that Elon Musk came to the book launch for this one, you know? no, And within eight months, this book (laughs) was out because this was the one that I wanted to get to because it's eight life tips. It's going to help everybody on the planet, jungle, man. Everyone will be helped by this book.
1: Well, I like that.
2: that. Tony Robbins telling people to buy my book in his advanced seminars. That just blew my mind, you know? And so.
1: I got to get this book. if It's going to help everyone on the planet.
2: For sure. Well, I mean, listen, I can, I can give you a couple of examples. All right. One, one chapter is just take your yearly goals and put them on your bathroom mirror. So, you know, 2022 goals, tape them on your bathroom. Or you, so now it takes you a couple of days to decide what those goals are in order. And so everybody that does this, they hit their first and second goal. I've changed tens of thousands of people's lives. I'm going to change millions of people's lives. That's one chapter. Take your life goals, write them, down, your, your, your yearly goals. Sorry, life goals is another chapter. Yearly goals, and I'll write 2021 20, goals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I see that every day when I brush my teeth, I brush my teeth and brush my hair. And I see that every day and it sinks through. And so you kind of leave the house on path. And then one other one I love, Jungle Man, is, is you look at the subtitle of this book, you're always in the right place at the right time. So I show people how that's true. And the one example I can share with you that I use in the book is this. Say there's two people living side by side. They both have three kids. Mm-hmm. And they both discover the eight perfect reasons to have their dream, a sports bar. Okay? Mm-hmm. And one person tells his wife and his kids, these are the eight reasons, right? Even his wife's inspired listening. The kids maybe ignore him. But, you know, his wife's expi- inspired, right? His this is great. Then he says, Martha, please pass the peas," Which is code for... I'm done with the idea. Uh, Carl Westcott, a great man, gave me the Martha, please pass the piece. Talking about people at the dinner table with all these great ideas. And they don't do anything with them. The guy next door. Same situation, same amount of kids. You know what? Eight perfect reasons for a sports bar, okay? Right? He makes one simple adjustment. The other guy doesn't. He says, you know what? I'm going to stop by my favorite sports bar tomorrow.
1: There you go. I was about to now say. Think, I never was like talking about stuff and not doing it. Let's just just, just do this stuff. Let's like. Yeah, you do
2: do stuff. You're a doer. You don't need you don't need that lesson, but it helps to see it. And so, what happens, Jungle? That guy on the way home from work, he opens the door to his favorite sports bar, but that door has been opened physically, but also, also figuratively. Behind that door, you can see what exa- You can see all the possibilities. By opening that figurative door and pursuing one step towards his dream, he could run into the owner of that sports bar. That's the next door. Talk to him. Maybe the guy says, I can help you with finances. Maybe the guy wants to sell him his sports bar. And so now you've opened a door, then another door, then another door, and then another door. That's what great people do. They open doors and they end up with the perfect sports bar. That's what they do. But the rest of the world says, Martha, please pass the peas. And so this is an example from this book, which takes 70 minutes to read, okay, that shows the world they're in the right place at the right time. Most people aren't ready for that.
1: That I happen to completely agree with. And that's actually because of that kind of philosophy you illustrate it in a totally different way through a more real world example and like some of the things that actually can happen this is part of the reason why I do some unusual things such as uh such as things that don't result in actually making money but that open up a ton of doors um this is partly why I like went out and started my charity foundation, even though I didn't know like the first thing about running a charity foundation, and I'm still learning. Of course, it's a bit complicated. Jungle man, let
2: me tell you, I talk about charity in in my book too, right? And what you're doing, I've raised sixty-six million dollars at events I've and sometimes you know, sometimes I see other guys talking about, and it doesn't matter. Sixty-six million dollars, maybe it's up to seventy million, right? Oh, yeah, I've- and. It's crazy. And I'm not saying that I do any of the work, but I show up, my name's on the event, and I MC the event. And I come in and I have the microphone for 8, 10 hours. That's what I do. But let me tell you, what, 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 what there's a personal benefit for you and me. We yeah. feel more of a sense of entitlement to make a lot of money. So when I feel more entitled to make a billion dollars because I've never cheated on my wife because hmm. I raise a lot of money for charity because I help a lot of people out, right? Yeah. And so then I feel more entitled to win, to win, to win, to win, because I say, why not me? And now you're doing a similar thing. You're opening a charity. You, you make a lot of money playing online, but now you're using it for a specific good purpose. And you say, why not you? You're going to make more money in your own life because you're helping other
1: people. Well, I hope you're right, Phil. I really do. I hope you're right. It hasn't been working out that way so far. But, you know, my, my priorities have shifted. I had a, yeah, so it's a sub- subject for another time. Um, speaking of which, I want, I know we're a little bit over time, Phil. I'd like to keep going. Do you have extra time? Yes. Like-
2: Hold on. Let me, let me say one more thing. Shuma. What you said is very interesting is this jungle man. You said that you said, I think of the truth as being this amorphous blob. Yes. Called green in color. It's floating out there. So I came and showed you the one angle of why we're always in the right place at the right time. Tony Robbins comes from this direction. We end up agreeing exactly. And you're coming from a different direction. That's what you just said. You believe everything I said about being in the right place, but you come from a different angle. And so it's the more you can show the world this amorphous blob of truth. Yes. Which is which this book is this amorphous blob of truth. And yeah. any great book. How to influence and in, win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie is an amorphous blob that of it yeah. comes from a different angle
1: it's a yeah it's a great analogy actually um, and I'm pretty much on the same you no know, I agree about your analogy about truth too I believe it's actually a well that there are uh well, part of the belief of the podcast is, in fact, the under, I should say an understated belief of the podcast is that there are, uh, how should I say, truths that can be, there's a term for it, but I forget what, the, what it's called, truths that can be universally agreed on. But we're all kind of getting to that in the same kind of way, that like, these are the ways that you actually succeed in life. Yeah, I mean, the
2: amorphous blob thing was interesting for me because I was talking to – I get to hang out with these really spiritually advanced people too, right? Mm-hmm. And then once – and Mike, I, I like deep conversations. So I can talk to anybody about the Green Bay Packers or whatever, but that, that's boring for me after a minute. I love the Packers, and I love talking about them for a couple minutes. Yeah. But I'm going to generally connect with people at the deepest levels. When I'm with you know, Steve Kerr, the, the Warriors coach, I wanted to ask him – I wanted to talk to him about how do you deal with ego and success? And he and I had very similar understandings of that. And so then when I'm, with, when I'm with a famous billionaire, same thing. How do you deal with ego and success? So I'm always looking inside, inside, inside. And the fact is you and me, jungle man, we can lose all of our money on any given day. We can go to the Bellagio high limit room and we can play whatever limit they're playing. And Maybe we start at 5,000, 10,000. And then and if, we're, if we get 5 million loser, then they'll be like, oh, well, we'll play 30,000, 60,000 with you, right? Because mm-hmm. maybe you're off and they see you're off. And then all of a sudden it'll be 50 and 100,000. And you could either one of us could lose all of our money on any given day. That gives you incredible insight into yourself because you don't want that ever happen. So you're always looking inward, looking inward, looking inward and learning lessons. And yeah. so, you know, now I'm trying to share those lessons with the world in my book, Positivity.
1: It's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. I I think that secretly, I mean, I'm similar to you in that I can talk about, and I'm, I'm maybe even more stubborn in a way. I could talk about, well, the Packers. I don't even know what uh, sport they play. Frankly, I don't know what the another sports team. Uh, I don't know what city they're from, even though you just told me. Uh, But uh, yeah, I could talk about like some sorts of superficial things briefly, but uh, I prefer deep conversations as well. And I suspect that a lot of people are this way, perhaps one, haven't discovered it to some extent or don't realize it, and two, don't know how to have them. Um, Correct. I I also want to say there's, at least in my opinion, in in what you're talking about in like in how the poker players don't see that in building relationships with these business people or in educating them rather than looking them as like uh, a fish to be devoured, if you know what I mean. And this is one of the reasons why I don't like the term fish, because it has the implication that a fish is like some like a target, like a like something to take advantage of. I think that a lot of poker players. I hate don't hate that
2: word. I rarely use that word. I agree.
1: I consciously try not to. I use the word VIP a lot, uh, which is what they use in Asia, in fact. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention maybe there can be like an Asian billionaire, uh, the other like USA billionaire match and see who wins. I'm honestly not sure. I think Paul, specifically Paul Foy, would do really well. I don't know about the others, but uh, we'll see. That seems like a fun thing. I think that that would be something that would be entertaining to organize. Um, I personally want to direct attention to an underlying concept of creating this these situations, and this is what I personally believe in, uh, creating these situations that are mutually beneficial, such as, for example, you teaching the, the businessman poker and them benefiting by learning, and then you benefiting by building a relationship with them, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to, but I, my personal belief is that it it seems almost common sense as I say it is that if everyone looks towards build these greater than zero sum situations where both, both parties benefit and ignore the ones where people get devoured and that sort of thing, it, it like, It's points to sort of a bigger game. And this is this is the podcast. Uh what's the word? Uh Q Q the podcast name. It points to a potential situation where all of us can win, if that makes sense. And it's kind of this big spiritual game of like, does the greater good win? Or what is the what is the purpose of making all this money sort of thing? Um what are your thoughts on on this sort of subject, Phil? Well, I see you. Yeah, I mean I think Huh.
2: I mean I think you know you talk about you talk about entitlement and and you know you talk about like I think the the greater good is super important, right so uh, that's why that's why but but because I've raised so much money, again, I'm going back to what I said earlier because I've raised sixty six million for charities, and we give money to charities ourselves, you know um, it, it makes me have it makes me uh, have a bigger sense of entitlement when it comes to connecting with businessmen. Um, you know, uh, the connections there, or it's not there a lot of times, but you can try, you can put a little bit of effort in, you know, I think that, uh, you know, one of my poker friends said that every, every single person that's a billionaire is evil. And I just laughed because I know like 20 billionaires and yeah, I've been, yeah go ahead. 18 of them just created good stuff for themselves and the world. And so that's just a misunderstanding about some poker players, right? Now, if you came to me and said, hey, um, there's a percentage of guys that are worth 10 or 20 million or something that are bad, that, you know, that might even be a different percentage. But it's actually some of the biggest businessmen in the world are some guys that have actually, you know, gotten there by helping everybody and, and they can only lift each other together. So. You know, and they provided value for the world as well. So but I think it's interesting that some poker players look at it as oh, it's so binary,
1: you know. I hear that a lot. They, I hear that a lot. It's like go ahead, go ahead. I cut you off.
2: You're you're right though, I would say you know, I mean, I would say when you're playing poker with someone, uh, you know, and they're interested in you because they're at the table with you, right? Um, I'm interested in what they're doing. That's a natural interest, but I think poker players should cultivate that and learn that and find out how this guy How is this guy making his money? Right? It's pretty interesting. And then sometimes you find yourself by asking about him and by kind of understanding how he's making money that you can sometimes then invest with him, either alongside him or into his business. Or maybe he helps, you know, maybe you go to parties with him and you meet other guys that are trying to raise money, right? That are doing some interesting things. And so there's this whole dynamic sitting right in front of poker players, of a great way to mentor someone at the table and then be mentored by them, right? And then, you know, and then you're you're going to help his poker game. He's going to enjoy playing more and he's going to have more fun. And there's a relationship there where you're laughing and having fun. And then all of a sudden, and then on the other side, uh, he could end up making you a million, two million, ten million two million, $10 million. God knows how much because you're paying attention to what he's doing and you're drafting alongside him or drafting behind him, you know, uh, is, is a better way to look at it. But, but there's, there's all these possibilities that exist for poker players all the time. And they're just oftentimes too focused on what's my maximum amount of what I can win. I don't want to coach this guy because I could make da. no, no, that's, that's, that's a very bad view. Take a more nuanced view of the world.
1: And then I also think that they can be a common, mis, a common, uh, what should I say, a common subtle error of mindset is a lot of them, like you said, they're too focused on how do I get the most money, but they're not thinking I'm being really cold and being aloof and I should be more friendly or be more likable or make this experience better for the other person. Uh, their error yeah. is because they're just not really thinking about how to, make the experience actually better for the other person and in doing so the exactly. the, the businessmen are like i don't want really even want to play or hang out with this guy because he's boring and and what's my money and that's about it like why like, why should i even try to connect with this guy kind of thing i think this is a common mistake and mentality people have yeah and ultimately it even seeps through it seeps through beyond that in that how should i say if it seeps into the culture and that it creates this culture of, of people just trying to win and it becomes, and poker reduces to this super competitive situation where all it is is about winning. And, um, and it's, you know, when you see the tournaments on TV, everyone's super serious. And like, that's the only fucking thing they care about. And then, uh, it's it's not really attractive to a lot of people who are playing recreationally. They don't think about how are you going to create an environment that's welcoming and that sort of thing, let alone how do I, how do they or I or whoever's in the poker player's shoes uh, become friends with the businessman that can help me sort of thing. And I think that people are uh, – I, I see that you're not like this way at all. Uh, I think that people are just too focused on – On this, like, what's in it for me, sort of thing.
2: Let me. Let me. me, I want to ask you a question, Jungle Man. Now, it's going to come across as bragging, but I guess that's how I come across anyway. Uh, How much money do you think I've helped my friends make?
1: Uh, it's actually a good question. And by the way, it doesn't come across. So maybe, maybe a tiny bit bragging. Well, we'll, whatever. It'll it'll be okay for the sake of. When you hear the
2: number, you're going to think it's bragging take it all
1: right i am curious uh define friends is it like business people or just um, you know
2: friends that i hang out with three four times a year that i'm friends with you know or sometimes uh, more often than that
1: okay three or four times a year is like pretty loose for friendship i mean
2: you know i mean uh, my best friend is chiman so i hang out a lot with him but you know
1: all right Uh, uh uh, I mean, if Chamath counts, uh, I mean, does it depend on, like, if you provided the strategic visit, vision for Chamath? Well, first of all, that sounds like kind of a, an impressive feat. Uh, I don't know if you get full credit. I'm going to have to say uh, some number greater than $20 million. I don't know. Okay, how, so my, you're off
2: by about 70, uh, 70X.
1: 90- so I've
2: made my friends uh, about one, let's say today I'd have to look at the numbers, maybe 1200000000 billion. I've made my friends. Okay, so the first one Shamath went public with. Shamath went to meet with David Stern and uh, wanted to buy an NBA team. And David Stern said, sorry, there's nothing available right now. So he landed. He called me and said, damn it, I can't buy a piece of an NBA team. You know, about a month or two later, uh, I was with Joe Lacob, the Warriors owner. He's like, yeah, you know, the strike is coming up. I want might want to sell 10 11 12% of the team. I called Shamath. I put him and Joe Lacob together. I introduced him. I walked into the room with them with Joe and his son, okay, Kirk, and me and Shamath. And Shamath agreed to buy uh, 10 or 11 or 12% or whatever it is of the team Mm -hmm. for around between, I think he said, 400 million valuation. Now, the team, the Warriors were just uh, valued at 5.5 billion. So um, if he put, you know, and this, this is stuff he's talked about already. So, um, you know, so, <clears throat> I mean, so if 10% of the team, that's $500 million. So maybe put in four, that's $460 million, right? So that's, that's a deal that, you know, basically he wanted to buy a team. And, and basically I walked him into that deal. I found that deal for him. How? By listing. I wasn't looking for the deal for him. He just mentioned that I wanted to do this. And my friends mentioned they wanted to sell. Now you look, at the, you look at the SPAC that we did where we launched Rush Street Interactive. So my friend is, you know, CEO of the company and uh, it's public what he has, so he doesn't mind me talking about it. But uh, he's up roughly $700 million um, because my SPAC took him public. Now, you could argue that his company, <coughs> Rush Street Interactive, was going to go public through another SPAC. So that's true. So maybe I get zero credit but I can tell you that he gives me a lot of credit because I put him with great people and now they're floating. I don't know. I'd have to look up the number. They might be floating at 5.7 billion right now or something. (laughs) Um, Just look up RSI. So that's two guys that, you know, you look at, all right, so we're talking about 1.1 billion, 1.2 billion. Okay. Now there's also, there's all kinds of other connections I've made between businessmen too that have led to a lot of money. Right. And so, um, So that, those are just two of the big ones. And so, you know, it's, you find yourself, you know, in these situations where you know all these people, right? And you have all these connections, right? Niccolo DeMasi is behind our specs. and I, Niccolo hired me for a cell phone company. They gave me $500,000 worth of stock options, right? Basically to promote their phone. Okay. The phone didn't make it. But when Niccolo called me to apologize, I said, "No, don't apologize. Please let me know what you're doing next." Right? And meanwhile, uh, uh, one of my one of my one of the most famous women in the world hosted this book launch party for me for Poker Brat, and Elon Musk showed up. Elon Musk and a bunch of famous Elizabeth Holmes was there actually. <laughs> She's been in the press a lot. Uh, you know, at least 80 percent of people know who I'm talking about. But it was kind of this crazy, fun party. And my friend was there, Niccolo, and he's like, wow, you know everybody. And so he decided, when he called me, I said, tell me what you're doing next. I want in early. And he let me put 300000 sponsor money into this company because I said, because I know if you do business with somebody and they don't make it the first time, you always ask. I want to be involved the second, third, fourth time. We've seen this 100 times where the second, third, or fourth one hits, right? And he's like, wow, Phil, thanks for having confidence in me. And that's led to a lot of money for me. That's three specs I talked about at the beginning of the show that are all floating for billions of dollars. And I've made a lot of money. I put 500000 the second one and 500000 in the third one. Wow. You know, when that stock hits 30, I'm at $4.5 I put this money in a year ago, right? I wow. mean, and so that's been a lot of fun for me. Uh, but by providing value. Right, And by showing people, but my network is so deep that those possibilities exist where I can make people literally billions of dollars. And so that's been really fun for me. And that's a story I love to tell because I just figured it out recently.
1: I'm uh, I'm curious how you get started because you mentioned your network is deep. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people that are listening to this don't exactly, can't exactly say they know you know like any of these guys um or i didn't know
2: anybody in 2001 i didn't know anybody nobody 2002 nobody i slowly started meeting people the fame helped because a lot of the a-listers wanted to meet me right Mm -hmm. and then uh you know as as you know i would do an event say for a big company and the ceo of the company would come up and say hey you know tell me about what you're doing." and and I'd say, all right, let's have a drink and a cigar. So the CEO and I would head off, just the two of us, after the event was over, and we'd sit by the light, under the light somewhere in Pebble Beach, smoke a cigar and talk. And he'd tell me about how he made all of his money and how he's successful. And then oftentimes, sometimes some of the most famous billionaires in the world come to me and they say, Phil, help me with, what, help me with my thinking about what I'm doing next. And I'm like, what? Uh, how, how can I help? And then they sit down and, and I give them my opinion. And like, wow, that was enormously helpful for me, right? Yeah. And what will I say? Well, I'll just say, well, okay, I know you have three kids and you already have 8 billion and you want to spend extra time with them. I would be very careful entering this next project you're thinking about entering because no matter what, it's going to suck 20 hours a week out of you. Because yeah, you can raise 10 billion and, and do this, but you already have 8 billion and maybe you need to spend a little more time with, wife and kids because that's what you because you love them you're happy with them and so you know so sometimes I can provide very basic advice for some very very rich and famous people because I don't I'm not asking them for anything and that's the other thing that exists you know on these levels you know why we can all become friendly we never ask each other for anything and I think you know I've had friends call me and say I'm sending a jet for you and I'm like no you fucking aren't you know thank you I really appreciate you there's a hurricane coming. I'm going to send you a jet. No, you're not. But thank you. I'm going to fly home commercial, right? And so, you know. Well,
1: that's modest.
2: So I think some of, that, some of that comes from not asking anybody for anything, specifically not asking them for anything and them not asking me for anything. Hmm. But genuine interest in their business. And then, you know, and then I can, you know, and then I can say, wow, I like this. Maybe I can invest with you um is there anybody else who's doing what you're doing that might allow me to invest and so you end up deploying money in these baller spots
1: you know sure i've experienced a bit of that myself yeah oh uh, all right well
2: you know my biggest project is is you know is bitcoin latinum
1: yeah I was even thinking, know, but, like, what about this thing <laughs>
2: but i think you also are involved in luxon right
1: uh i i could have been but i decided not to
2: but bitcoin latinum is now floating on eight different exchanges the coins that are around 170 dollars a coin right now Hmm. and uh that's been a lot of fun and i think that you know we're waiting for it to get on coinbase or you know or one of the really big exchanges right yeah um and so you know um And so you know that was a that was a fun one for me. Is getting involved with these guys. My biggest project right now, basically what the coin does, it it, it allows you to. It's the only green coin. So now some of the world's biggest celebrities are talking to us because we're the only green coin in existence. I didn't know it was the only
1: green coin. I mean, yeah, it's
2: one of the only green coins. I think I'm probably exaggerating when I say only. Ah. But the coins trading, and so we're doing about four million in volume a day. When we get to seven million a day, then we're a top four hundred coin. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the volumes going like this. And Bitcoin latinum is an insured coin. So if you have $30 million worth, you can get insurance with Martian McLennan. You know, we can insure your coin for you if you lose it. It also has great security. So this coin, you have a credit card and you have your iPhone. And only with your iPhone and your credit card and your password can you access the coin. So you can leave the credit card at home and you can't access the coin, mm-hmm. right? You can leave your so. I mean, so basically, you need that you you'll actually use the card. Boom, 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 on the and so triple layer security. That's why we can insure it. So if someone cracks your triple layer security and you had thirty million dollars, Marshall McClenahan will give you thirty million dollars the next day or a week later or whatever it is, and so we it's insured. It's asset backed. So we raised. I'm not sure how much we've raised, but the goal is to raise a billion, and 222 million coins, and then basically. Uh, you know, each coin's worth four or five dollars. Right. Um, and so uh, and then also speed of speed of transactions. So you can use Bitcoin Latinum to buy a Starbucks and it's going to cost you 10 cents. If you try to use your Bitcoin to buy a Starbucks now, it's a thirty dollar fee. Really? So Yeah, your coffee's five bucks. You pay 30 extra for it. We'll charge you 10 cents and the transaction will be approved in, you know, three seconds or whatever it is. So Bitcoin Latinum is faster. It's asset backed, it's, you can insure it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, so yeah, it's my biggest project. It's been really fun to watch the coin come out of You know, we thought the coin would come out between 20 and hundred. It's pretty cool. It's at 170, but you know, as the volume increases, let's see where that coin is.
1: Oh, don't mind uh, you, you uh, uh, what's the word? Advertising for uh, the Bitcoin on the podcast. Uh, I've heard a few things. I've, I've been a bit more tempted as of recently. It sounds good. I don't. I can't. I don't think I can legally advise, give financial advice on the, on the forum. But uh, yeah, it could be. Could be exactly.
2: Something. I'm not exactly to be clear. I'm discussing the going, I'm not telling people to buy or sell. And you have to be very careful. Like I couldn't even talk. I have to be very careful. Uh, you know what I say. And I basically have told no one to buy, which is really smart. And then before a coin ICOs, you really can't say anything. So uh, we've yeah. ICOed on eight different exchanges, so at least I can talk about it comfortably now.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, what, it's, it's Yeah, all- but I'm
2: not telling – to be very clear and make sure you keep this in the podcast, I'm not telling anybody to buy or sell.
1: Yeah, it's all fine. I mean, I personally – I don't even honestly know whether um, – what to think. It's hard. It's complicated to determine whether to buy or sell. Investing can yeah. be complicated in private – private projects uh, as I've learned the hard way. Is there anything else oh, yeah. left out that, that that you would like to talk about?
2: I think we're good. And I think, uh, I think I have a phone call in uh, one or two minutes. So I think maybe it's a good time to end. Okay. We we're talking to the CEO of prize picks, Adam Wexler. It's been really fun. That's an app where you can place over and under bets in like 30 different states. Really? So. Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. I didn't including know. california so i can so i can do a bunch of over and under bets legally on prize picks right now on tonight's games whatever they are you know
1: any sports bettors out there sure they're i imagine their ears are perked up for that one i i had no idea um yeah so is there any place people can learn more about you would you like to share any contact information your instagram twitter our website Yeah, that's all good you
2: know i mean i think people can find me pretty quickly on twitter and instagram so not a big thing i think i'm phil Helmi's positivity on insta
1: you know yeah mm-hmm. i can uh, put up oh, your instagram 2
2: 30, i'm getting the time to call him okay okay all right jungle listen i thought that was that was yeah you did a really good job interviewing i, I felt like Thank i was you. expecting i wasn't you really kept it to, you kept it on me which i think is good when you're interviewing I tempted you to talk about yourself a lot and you kept coming back, which I, which I think there's a balance there. And I think you were pretty good. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you, 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 I I was surprised at how good you were at interviewing. So good
1: job. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, um, Yeah, I went a bit over time. I hope, I hope that's fine. I I originally, it it felt like I was going well. And uh, I originally had to keep these at like 15 to 30 minutes, but uh, yeah, thanks for being on Phil.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My, my pleasure. I mean, it was fun actually to discuss some of this stuff and I haven't really got to talk too much about the, uh, making my friends, you know, one point that that was fun too, for me, because it's kind of a cool, but yeah, the whole, the whole thing's fun, Jungle
0: but yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to winning the game of life with Dan Cates. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts next week for another great conversation. Of course, hit subscribe and follow Dan at the Dan Cates on Instagram.